What's up, everyone? I'm Catherine Rudder, and you're listening to Life in the Fast Chain. This episode speaks for itself, so I don't even really need to do a big introduction, but we have Dirk Bullman and Cedric Ombert from the European Central Bank, and I also have Isabel Corbett, who heads up our government relations team here at R3. So let's just get into it. studio with Head of Government Relations, Isabel Corbett, who's here to talk about all things government relations before we jump into this episode with European Central Bank, uh, Dirk and Cedric. Thank you so much for coming in today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I cannot complain because we're recording on a Tuesday and we had off yesterday in the U.S. So I feel refreshed and I'm finally sleeping uh, better because my dog is crate trained. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I couldn't have done it without you. I actually probably couldn't have. (laughs) I'm glad I could help. Having done that a few times, I know that it's hard. Um, Awful. I was a zombie last week. (laughs) I really, I think I complained to anyone who would listen. Um, But I'm happy we've we've passed that that threshold. So thank you for your help. You're more than welcome. (laughs) Okay, so before we get into the episode with Dirk and Cedric, um, you are in the government relations team here at R3. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's important? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I have been the head of government relations for almost four years here at R3. And that time is important because it really shows you how important the function is. From the beginning, when we're talking about using technology in regulated markets and to underpin the world's most important markets, the first question is, wow, how does that work? That sounds scary. How do I know that this isn't a risk? And it's my job to make sure that when governments and members of the public sector ask that question, we're there to answer it. So really, we are engaging with them from an education perspective. We've been doing that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to see those conversations going all the way to governments asking, how do we use the technology? Yeah, that must be really cool for you specifically, because you've been at R3 for so long, kind of watching the maturation of obviously Corda, you're focused on Corda, but just in general, the government's like learning more and kind of like holding hands through the process, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. At the beginning, it was questions about Bitcoin. It was questions about what it means that Donald Trump was elected, which (laughs) took a large portion of my job there for a while. (laughs) Conversations about Brexit. Yeah. And and going back to the actual conversation that we wanted to be having, which was about blockchain and Corda, we've seen engagement grow. We have seen Mm -hmm. regulators understanding more. Now you sit down in a meeting and instead of one or two people, it's... 8, 10, 15 people from a variety of departments asking advanced questions. And they come in and oftentimes they already know the difference between permissioned and permissionless. They know what it means to to use proof of work or proof of stake. They're having these conversations at a much more sophisticated level. So I've watched that. I've watched that process. And it's been really exciting. Yeah, totally. I'm very interested in, so you travel all over all the time, constantly on the road. Um, And so you're constantly working with different governments. How is that? Like, I feel like that would be a massive challenge, especially because your team's fairly small and you you do so much work for the team. Well, I I have spent a lot of time on airplanes. I have the the bags under my eyes to prove it. (laughs) 
but, you know, it, it's been interesting because we have seen regulators engage in pockets of collaboration. So mm-hmm. we have had projects within R3 that have involved multiple regulators. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing regulators collaborate, like with BIS announcing that they were bringing together a group of central banks, yeah. including the ECB, who's on your podcast after this, yeah. uh, to explore CBDC together. So that's really powerful. That really helps me in my job see regulators coming together and central banks having these conversations together because it's very much a collaborative uh, space and it's a collaborative technology. Yeah, that's so crazy. I will link to um, that article in the bio of this episode so people can learn more. But it's obviously really exciting. The collaboration in, I think, in the blockchain world is also so important. You see consortiums popping up left and right. And of course, for a while, we were like, don't say consortium because we've moved past. (laughs) But it's true, like the collaboration, it's a big part of it. Um, so why are the, why is there interest? So these central banks are uh, coming together um, to discuss it. Why is that important? So it's important, well, number one, just in terms of collaboration to keep yeah. on the theme, to have yeah. central banks looking at these these uh, questions and opportunities presented by CBDC together is powerful. Yeah. But also central banks are, are in an interesting position right now, which mm-hmm. is there are cryptocurrencies out there that have been out there for a decade now. Yeah, uh, Some of them are gaining traction. They're certainly showing their volatility. Mm-hmm. There are suggestions that they could um, play a role in the, in the money space where fiat is no longer the one and only option for consumers. Instead, they can start using a virtual currency. Yeah. And so central banks are kind of being called to action just yeah. by virtue of those existing. And then once you had Libra announced, that you know, was not handled well. <laughs> I don't think anyone would suggest it was. It certainly wasn't handled how I would have done it. Yeah. Uh, but – that definitely put central banks on notice, on their toes, and it caused them to react and say no. Yeah. But it did also bring them to the table. So so yeah. that's been really productive. Yeah, I think Libra is very interesting. I've talked about Libra a bunch in the past on the podcast. But um, I think the, one of the main things and the benefit would obviously be the conversation is, is was kind of pushed to the forefront, um, which I feel – it was kind of avoided a little bit for a while, this like idea of a digital currency actually being used by central banks. So I think it's Libra is an interesting one for me. If you were to be in control of how they kind of went about this, what would you have done? It, this kind of feels like law school starts out <laughs> hypothetically. Hypothetically. It, you know, it, their big mistake was far before the Libra reveal. It was Mm -hmm. once they started losing their reputation as a responsible innovator. And when I say they, I mean Facebook. You really have to not only have open communication with regulators and be transparent, you also really need to have a good reputation and your behavior needs to support that reputation. So once you start losing your reputation as a responsible innovator, you really are on your back foot. And yeah. you need to, you need to get back and and make up ground and solidify those relationships. Um, and jumping right into something as controversial as Libra without any sort of warning is never going to work. So our yeah. three from the beginning took the opposite approach. We said we want to establish ourselves as responsible. We want to address every concern about our technology, be able to demonstrate that it's responsible, yeah. and be transparent from the beginning. So we've always done that, and that has that has 
paid dividends. Yeah. And it's essentially the polar opposite of the Libra approach. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. So at least, I mean, I think that that tells that we would have done things differently. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking about this with me. Um, You join us for the ECB recording. Thank goodness. I was so happy to have you there. So let's get into it. Thank you. with Dirk and Cedric from the European Central Bank. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So happy we finally made it work despite everything batting against us from technical issues to time zones, location, Um, but I'm really happy to have you guys on. Yeah, we managed to make it work. Thank you for our flexibility. I mean, thank you for your flexibility. I have been a nightmare to coordinate with. Um, I also have Isabel here in the studio with me. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you for having me. I basically forced her in here because I thought she could provide some good insights. Um, So before we get into it, tell me about yourselves. Cedric, you go first, then Dirk. Okay, I can go first. Uh, So um, uh, um, I've been working with the ECB for about four years. Uh, I'm originally an engineer, and uh, I work in the Market Infrastructure and Payments uh, Directorate uh, with uh, Dirk uh, for about three years on uh, blockchain and uh, innovation, uh, mostly because uh, technology has sort of brought a wind of of change uh, onto traditional ways that FMIs were uh, thinking about how to do their uh, work. And so we are trying to look at this and and get an idea of how this could work in the future. Cool. Hi, I'm Dirk. Uh, I'm coordinating the, the work uh, in the field of innovation in the market infrastructure and payments department. So everything is, as Cedric said, around blockchain, distributed data technologies, central bank digital currencies, stable coins, this kind of stuff. Awesome. So what made you guys start looking into blockchain at the ECB? Uh, well, um, maybe when you when you speak about uh, central banking, then you think about uh, monetary policy, maintaining price stability. But in order to make this happen, you need uh, market infrastructure services, you need payment services, and this is what uh, what we offer, what we do uh, here in, in in our area, uh, just to make liquidity flow from uh, country A to country B. And so we operate payment systems, and and then uh, we were couple of years ago, uh, already approached with and confronted with the question, why don't we use blockchain for our services? You know, we, we, we rolled out big market infrastructure services in the field of security settlement, like target to securities. And then last year with, uh, uh, with, with tips, with targeting some payment settlement, we, we went live with another uh, service. And w- whenever we, we, we discuss this with market participants, whenever we go to conferences and we speak there, the question is, you had your time, if you had your time again, would you use blockchain? So that was the question. And uh, so, okay, we had to come up with an answer. And yeah. that, uh, that uh, made, made us uh, think. And, uh, and this is how we started with Innovation Lab inside the ECB, which we created then, I think, more than three years ago uh, already. So the, the approach we follow is actually we want uh, to understand really how it, how it functions. You can uh, do your dex- desktop research. You can... Uh, uh, read newspaper articles and ask externals, but we thought it's good to roll up our sleeves and to get our hands dirty and to do the work ourselves. And that is why we created an innovation lab where we experiment with blockchain. 
Very cool. So what were your guys' first experiences with blockchain? Um, I like asking this question because a lot of times people will be like, oh, well, I started off being interested in cryptocurrencies and they scared me or they intrigued me. Um, so I wanted to know more. So what were your first personal touch points with the technology? My first touch point with the technology was actually a Coursera course back when I was uh, still at university. Uh, so I was big on that and I took one of the first one available there uh, and uh, and completed the course before even joining the ECB. And then at the ECB, when the topic was raised up, uh, I tried to approach it from uh, from what I had learned in that course. That's sweet. Uh, I wasn't able to have that experience at school, uh, but I wish I could. I was kind of just thrown into this company to uh, figure it out all by myself. Um, so, okay, let's talk about everything you guys have done. Uh, you have the Stella project. Can you talk a little bit about that and the different phases of the project, what you guys have been focusing on generally, and then we can uh, touch on the results of your research. Okay, so I think uh, Project Stella is, is quite special because I think it's uh, it was the, the, the very first time two larger central banks joined forces and uh, decided to jointly experiment uh, with blockchain, with distributed ledger technologies. Um, what, we, what we always uh, say, this is a general disclaimer, what, what, when, when we uh, explain what we would do, this is not geared towards replacing anything that currently exists. It's not the intention to replace our uh, existing services by, by a blockchain-based uh, a payment or security settlement uh, system, but but uh, when when we were confronted with this with the questions I mentioned around blockchain, uh, of course we discussed also in the international community and uh, we discussed with the Japanese, and uh, then we realized uh, okay we are in the same situation. We we are confronted with the same question, so we decided to join forces. And uh, technologies like blockchain don't stop at borders anyway. So we thought, okay, let's let's do it together. Let's do it jointly. The, the starting point actually was that, okay, we thought, can or we asked ourselves the question, can uh, blockchain meet the efficiency and safety requirements of our existing market infrastructure services? So is it good enough? Is, does it serve for the same purpose, service level? And uh, so this was the, the first step of, uh, of in, in our journey. And uh, that was Stellar Phase 1, which... Uh, I think we published in September 2017 already. So we really checked, okay, what is about, can, can the performance of a, of a large value payment system uh, be met by, by a blockchain-based solution? And uh, what about uh, resilience? So this is what we, what we started in the first phase of, uh, of Project Stella. And I think at, at the time we, we used uh, uh, a blockchain protocol, which... Uh, uh, was uh, I mean at the time it was relatively new and it was not very stable. So, but still I think we concluded that uh, it it could in principle meet the existing requirements of a large value payment system at least where you have on average 50 transactions per uh, per second. So it's not that much. So that was the first part of the journey, field of payments. Then in the second phase we thought okay that was that was payment systems, but uh, then you also have the field of security. So we asked ourselves how it could uh, work when you when you exchange cash against securities against equities for example mm -hmm. and that was the second phase which went live in march 2018 and here we discovered new approaches for settlement across ledgers with the hash time locked uh, uh, contract which we which we have uh, worked on there so that was the second phase and then in the third phase uh, we went more in the sphere of cross border payments building on 
the work we had done in the first and and second phase. So Stella three went. Uh, we, we published it in June 2019, and uh, we are now publishing our fourth report, which is on privacy enhancing techniques. So it's a long journey, but I think it's a very uh, rich analysis which we which we have conducted with uh, with the Japanese colleagues. So I think it it was very valuable. It has been very valuable and will be uh, very valuable also in the future for our for our work in the field of blockchain. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a really in-depth project, obviously, spanning over the years. Um, if you guys, I guess, just curious, if you had started phase one now in 2020, would you have done anything differently? Or because the technology, as you said, and you don't necessarily have to, <laughs> to answer this, but as you said, like it was kind of early days, like the years in this, in this field it's crazy so much happens in a year so that's why i'm kind of curious yeah um so what we have done in the other phases where we also uh, tried to uh, experiment differently is that in the first time we only had one platform in the second one we already tried with two or three uh and so we tried to sort of diversify and get a flavor of the different uh solutions that existed out there um, so that's, that's how I would say we could do differently or how we would have started potentially differently. Although at the time there was only one solution that was really out there in the market to, to take and to try and experiment. Uh, and, and so we, we, we would change that, I suppose. But we have done already that. That's so funny to think about too. So I'm thinking that was what, four years ago, I guess. And yeah, like for us, my perspective is always like the R3 perspective, like Corda didn't even, we didn't even launch Corda yet. Open source. Obviously not enterprise either, but that's so weird to me. It's so long ago. I feel like it's yeah, indeed. I think the first uh, few, the, the last few weeks of experiment with uh, the first phase, uh, Corda was launched, and so we had a first go at it at the time, uh, and then we used Corda in the second phase of the project. So for Stella two, uh, we tried to implement a delivery versus payment prototype on uh, on Corda. Um, we had for that a few nodes uh, that were running in our test environments. And uh, we were able to have some uh, cache being issued on a couple of nodes and some uh, representation of securities being issued on a different node. And uh, our goal was to uh, exchange uh, cache on one side against security on the other side in a way that is uh, atomic. I think you've talked about atomicity in this uh, podcast before. Uh, so people, I hope, understand what that entails. Uh, we describe it quite intensively in the report. Um, and we were able to do that with, uh, with Corda. And we also yeah. had a few tries and experimentation with uh, hash time lock contracts, also at the occasion of, of uh, Stella 2 and Stella 3. Uh, so trying to be on the experimentation edge at, at that time. Okay, so I want to unpack two of the things that you just said. So can you um, explain kind of for people who don't really know what delivery versus payment is, could you explain that? And can you explain also the hash time lock contracts? Sure. Um, so the delivery versus payment is when, uh, let's say you have a bank, we usually name them bank A and bank B. Uh, so you have actually two banks and uh, you have uh, two uh, what we call CSDs, so uh, entity that handle securities. And uh, so uh, the client of bank A wants to pay a, another person, the client in bank B. So for that, they send cash, but on the other side, um, the uh, so client B uh, wants to send some securities to CSDA. And in order to do that in a safe and efficient way, uh, we would like, we wanted to test that on the uh, technical side, 
there was going to be only one single transaction. So the transfer was complete. So cash was moving from A to B and securities were moving from B to A in one single go. So that's the atomicity part. Um, yeah. And we were able to uh, have that thanks to the, um, the the flow framework in Corda, which was sufficiently flexible to add uh, both security states and cash states into one single transaction, and then to have that notarized um, into into one single step, essentially. And so as, to, as long as you had a notarized, you would be able to, to roll back or nothing would have happened, uh, more, more simply. Um, so I guess that covers your, your question, what we were trying to experiment, what DVP is. Um, yep. Now on the hash time lock contracts, uh, which we were um, trying to experiment, but we haven't done that actually on Corda at the occasion of Stella 2, we only experimented. Um, it's a new technique that sort of came out of all the experimentation around uh, transferring assets between uh, two different uh, blockchains. Uh, so that would be, for instance, a, um, a Bitcoin uh, that you would transfer against uh, some amounts of Ether on Ethereum network. And uh, we thought, okay, how could we sort of replicate uh, this mechanism uh, for the assets that we are normally handling? And uh, the way they would do this, or that was described and that we implemented uh, for, for our prototype, uh, was to have um, one of the, of the, um, of the sides uh, issue a contract and to lock down the asset in that contract um, subject to the um, uh, release of a given secret. And then on the other ledger, you would have at the same time also the, um, uh, the other asset being locked down. And again, uh, it would be locked down based on the fact that the secret would be uh, uh, pro provided to that contract. And when this contract, let's say, gets triggered and the secret gets given, then it releases a secret so that the other participant is able to, to take that. So in, in, in a very brief, uh, not step-by-step -step description, that's how it works. Uh, I think if you want to know more, you can go into the, into the report. Yeah, definitely. And I will link all of this information um, in the bio of the episode. So what does that uh, like work process, how does that work with the Bank of Japan? Because obviously you guys are in different locations. Um, how do you do these reports all together? Um, so we have a, sort of established a work process over the, over the years. Uh, we do most of our exchange over, uh, over weekly calls and video exchanges. Uh, we do have some bilateral meetings with our colleagues when they come to uh, Frankfurt or we go to Tokyo. Uh, we had a few of those. And uh, then to be able to um, run experiments uh, together and to be able to replicate what each other is doing, we have also uh, set up some, uh, some test environments and uh, some ways to, to share the code. Um, so we have a pretty good relationship with the, with the colleagues there and we are able to, let's say, do everything in duplication uh, so that we are, let's say, sound on the results. Great. Do you guys like Japan? Fantastic. The food is great, no? Sushimi, <laughs> wonderful. It's a yeah. different culture, no? It doesn't compare really to our, to our culture here, so it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's so different. I went to Japan for the first time, uh, was that two years ago, maybe? For the first time ever, and I was just, like, obsessed with the culture. And I really needed to, like, down, like, tone down my Americanness. I felt, which is hard for me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the same. We had to tune down some of our Europeanness when we were there sometimes. <laughs> you know the movie Lost in Translation with Bill Murray yeah. and Scarlett Johansson? Yeah. That's how it feels like, no? 
Oh, it's great. It's really great. <laughs> no, it's great. You, have you been, Isabel, to um, Japan a lot? I have been there three times since working at R3. Okay. Japan was uh, really important from the very beginning. So when we were yeah. a consortium, which we are not supposed to say anymore, we had a big membership in Japan. It was one of the yeah. most active jurisdictions. So yeah. uh, our, our presence in Asia, I think, was pretty much anchored there. And then we, we really expanded pretty quickly thereafter. Yeah, when I think about Japan, and then we'll go back to <laughs> business. When I think about Japan, I think about the fact that, so Charlie Cooper, who was my boss at the time, and he does our like external affairs and, and government affairs and stuff. So, um, but he did not want to go. So when he sent me, and then there was breaking news about our three. And so, but he was supposed to be there for like interviews with like Bloomberg and like all these news sources. But since he wasn't there, he sent me into the mix. And at the time, what was I? I was like 23. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was supposed to sit in and tell David Rutter and Richard Gendel Brown how to conduct these interviews. And I was, it was the scariest moment of my life because I was like, mm, sorry, you can't be saying that. And I don't know what I'm talking about. So trial by fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's good practice. It was, uh, <laughs> and the the people, the interviewers were like, "Why? What is this young girl doing here?" <laughs> oh, and now so here you scary. are with your own podcast with more than a hundred thousand downloads. Literally, look at me now. Look <laughs> at me now. I've really flourished. Okay, <laughs> I'm kidding. Again, got to tone down the Americanness. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about Eurochain. What is Eurochain? So Eurochain is a is a is a network of uh, of interested European central banks. So um, when we speak about central banks, we always make the joke. Okay, central bank has the word central uh, in, in its in its terms. So uh, so we cannot really think about a decentralized uh, setup with 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 maybe DLT being being used, but. On the contrary, we are in the in the euro area. We are we are a group of central banks. We are 19 central banks, and uh, so the, then out of this year, the idea was born: let's work together and let's build a, maybe a decentralized infrastructure, a playground, which we can use to experiment with blockchain. And so we did. So we we then created this uh, this decentralized uh, network, and uh, we started experimenting, and that was. Uh, how it how it all started, and the, now we've just or you guys have just returned, Cedric, from uh, from a hackathon uh, in, in in Paris. So this is now the the way we work together in the central bank community that we really uh, pitch some some uh, some ideas and uh, then do hackathons and experiment with uh, blockchain technology. But Cedric, you have the experience. You went to Paris. I didn't. Yeah, indeed. So we uh, go to uh, hackathons that we organize between ourselves. Uh, we have about uh, 50 or so participants coming in, uh, and we work on uh, on projects that uh, we have either started to develop before or that we would like to get started during the hackathon. And um, so about five or six projects every time, teams of around 10 people, both uh, developers, so we have some engineers present, and we have also our uh, traditional, I would say we call them business colleagues, that know about the, the traditional business of central banks and payments and the and security uh, settlement systems. Uh, so we have them all together for three days or so, and we end up with a presentation, a demo, uh, and some valuable lessons that we can take on what technology can do at this level and what we were able to do in just a few days. So I, I travel around the world talking to regulators and central banks, 
And I get a lot of interest in doing a hackathon. But I think that for the most part, people are a little afraid of it because it's, it is not something that central bankers typically do in their day job. It's not something that most of us are familiar with. And so the idea of getting into something like a hackathon where people wear hoodies and stay up all hours of the night to do technical things that most of us who are not developers can't understand is a little bit intimidating. So can you speak a little bit about where the idea came from, what the experience was like, including the energy in the room and what you got out of it, what you learned? Um, yeah, so the, 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 the idea of the hackathon sort of came up um, on, on, on the point that we were not sure exactly how to, uh, indeed, all the, all, like, overpass all, all the things that you have just mentioned. Uh, so the idea of the hackathon is that you create this safe space where you do this for a short amount of time, and then if you don't like the idea, if you haven't managed to get it off the ground in a couple of days, then you can drop it. So it really creates this sort of platform on which you can, uh, I would say, uh, almost cost-free uh, try out those ideas. And uh, it has proven to be valuable for, the, for our colleagues in the, in the central banking system that can uh, learn from each other and that can uh, start and uh, sort of uh, experiment uh, easily. So it's kind of an easy way to fail fast, which is a motto that, that we use in the company. I think you see across blockchain. I get feedback from people who participate in hackathons, especially government ones, and they're always surprised by how fun they are. Do you guys have fun doing this? Uh, yeah, of course, quite a bit. Um, it's very different from what how we normally work, right? Um, so it, it, with, a, I would say, a little bit of a hackathon energy, you already get to be quite a bit of fun. Uh, so we, we do have funds, and we try to also invite the people that are uh, willing to engage with the ideas. So uh, we, we is a bit of a get-together of, um, of, of colleagues that are uh, willing to experiment. Work has to be fun, no? It has <laughs> to, right? Like, I'm envisioning, yeah. like, hoodies and pizza, maybe a little beer. I don't know. Yeah. Right? I, think, I think that's is why that what people they have fun. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I got our team on. I've had our, our team who do hackathons on with central banks all over the world. To ask to answer these questions, and they say, you know, oh, we'll bring in pizza and we'll bring in beer and we'll stay up all night, and people get really excited. And then when the thing proves out, they want to do another one. So I'm glad to hear that this is true in practice and that these events are fun and useful because I think that the readout from these events is really really helpful. Yeah. So my next question is the <coughs> all of this learning that you're doing. How will this feed into the collaboration that BIS announced with central banks, including the ECB? So what we're doing, I would say mostly, is we, we build on those prototypes, right? Uh, one of the prototypes that we did uh, that uh, we released a report recently about uh, tackled the topic of uh, anonymity in uh, uh, central bank digital currencies. Uh, so we, had, we took the opportunity of the hackathon to uh, develop some features on that. And uh, then we are publishing it out there and for the for the greater public. Uh, so what we had is essentially a hypothetical CBDC scenario uh, where we had uh, banks, the oh, central bank, sorry, that provides uh, cash uh, to uh, intermediaries. And then those intermediaries are able to provide that to uh, to customers. And what we were trying to achieve is to have a certain level of privacy so that there was no uh, central entity on the ledger. Uh, that was able to see and know everything. Uh, we also had, um, uh, let's say, a validation process that included an anti-money uh, laundering uh, node, 
uh, mm -hmm. that would be able to check certain transaction at uh, above a certain threshold for every single user. Um, so the, the, those can contribute to the to the higher level debates on the on the topic. I think that to, these days there's a lot of discussion around central bank digital currency, and and yes, we we are exploring the matter, uh, but it's not in our view enough to do more policy related work. We also yeah. need to understand how we could potentially one day, if necessary, translate uh, this into reality. So I think we, we then follow the more analytical, theoretical policy paths, but we also do the experiments. And, and the hackathons have proven very useful there because you, at the end of the day, you need to know what, uh, what the design of your CBDC looks like, whether it should have an anonymity feature, whether it should be interest bearing, these kind of stuff. And these need to, you, need to, you need to design and you need to then uh, program and you need to test. And this is what we are doing in the hackathons. Yeah, I'm sure you are provided a lot of insights after the hackathons. Um, so to kind of talking about hackathons and collaboration and everything, um, how does ECB work with uh, central banks of European countries, like national um, central banks? And so really also, when after these hackathons, are these decisions being made by the ECB or at the EU level, or do member countries... It have the opportunity to to arrive at a different conclusion than maybe the ECB does. I, I think the 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 purpose of the of the euro chain and of the hackathons is to to broaden our understanding in in the field of digital assets in in the field of uh, blockchain distributed ledger technologies. So this is it. So it's it's, it's learning and uh, so we, we we don't do this at this stage to say okay. Maybe we want to build a central bank digital currency. Maybe we want to, to build a payment system uh, built on, on DLT. Uh, that's not the intention. So yeah. there, there's no direct connection between the, uh, the more policy-oriented discussion and the hackathon. Hackathons for us, we are at the moment the free radicals. No, we, we just uh, want to understand things better, and this is what we do. But, but now that uh, the discussion around central bank digital currency gains momentum, it's very useful because we've already done a lot of work and this can be, can be used in the discussion around central bank digital currency and it will be used. Yeah, so, um, so why did you uh, decide to explore anonymous digital cash? So we decided to uh, explore anonymity in the world of central bank digital currency because it seemed to be a hot topic. Uh, one of the key sort of design or uh, questions that you have is, uh, do you want to have something along the lines of cash as it exists today? Uh, so that is bills and coins that you exchange in a relatively anonymous way. Uh, and our sort of uh, line of thought is, okay, how, how um, private, uh, how much anonymity can we give to a digital system while still uh, keeping some of the rules that you would like to ensure? Um, some rules such as uh, having uh, a limit on how much you can spend every month uh, as a person, um, but uh, un so under a certain threshold, you would be uh, able to transact this without going to um, a given authority, but above that level uh, in that given month, you would need to uh, register all your exchanges uh, to that uh, anti-money laundering node. So what we created was a, uh, it's a very small, uh, but still uh, somewhat interesting uh, 
chord and network with uh, five notes, uh, an elode and uh, two intermediaries. Mm -hmm. uh, so then you would have, of course, the notary that is there to make sure everything is okay. Uh, and you could imagine you have some kind of a gatekeeper or some node that keeps the network closed. And then we issued on that uh, states uh, that represented this um, digital uh, asset uh, that was issued by the central bank. We uh, used for that token SDK. Um, and then we programmed some special rules on this contract so that uh, we could, for instance, uh, enforce that the um, the AML node would be seeing the, the 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 states when we were going above that limit. And for that, the technical solution that we uh, decided to to take uh, was something inspired from the the billing states, which are also part of a package that uh, R3 provides, um, and that enable us to basically uh, add in uh, vouchers into our transaction that are below. Uh, this limit, and as you scrub out the vouchers of your account, uh, then you sort of um, um, signify the fact that you're about to transact uh, without involving the AML authority. And as soon as you get above, uh, or you run out of your vouchers, then you have to spend and notify the AML authority. So this whole uh, experiment was to be able to um, see how much uh, we could have, uh, how much privacy we could have, and. Um, and then we implemented that and, and were able to see it and to run it. Uh, one of the uh, additional features that we implemented uh, also on that is uh, what uh, we, we called, and I think you also call it in R3, a snipping uh, solution, so that at the end of every day, uh, more or less, or at a given interval, you would be able to um, remove all the history of all the states that were being transacted, because one of the caveats that we identified, although um, Corda is quite uh, private, was that as you were passing along uh, the states uh, through the network, then potentially some of the intermediaries that are holding the, um, the, 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 the wallets and holding the accounts uh, on behalf of the, of the citizens, uh, they could build up some sort of uh, uh, knowledge map of all the uh, states that were being uh, transacted. And so we wanted to avoid that. And the solution was to, at the end of the day, bring the whole history to the central bank. The central bank would be able to uh, cut that out and reissue brand new states. Um, and uh, we were talking about Hackathon a little earlier. Uh, we had our Hackathon in Paris uh, last week, uh, where we then took that prototype again and for another spin. And on that, we tried to uh, look at how much, let's say, throughput we could go via this network. Uh, so for that, we had to go and bump the, the token. We tried to bump up the token uh, SDK version we were using, and we then also tried to uh, run this on the enterprise uh, uh, version of Corda. So we were getting quite reasonable performance, I would say, and, and, and uh, a very good latency. So we were, we were quite uh, surprised to see how much we could get uh, on, the, on the DLT there. We also experimented along the lines of uh, implementing uh, interest rates, not just based on, uh, you know, if you have one euro, then you get 1.1 uh, euro at the end of the year. Uh, but the interest rate computation is actually based on your balance. And uh, above a certain threshold, you get uh, maybe a bit less interest on your balance, uh, on, on your on your states. Uh, so we were also able to implement that such a way that uh, the the central bank arguably could be in uh, in in able to steer how much uh, CBDC units are in circulation by having an interest rate on the on the balance of the of the citizens. Cool. Okay, let's quickly talk about because I, I want to be conscious of your guys' time. Um, let's quickly talk about. Crypto assets and stablecoins. Um, why are you guys interested in those? 
Yeah, you know, we, 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 we have the euro as our currency. No, it's our money here. And of course, we would like to understand whether there are other uh, assets, whether there are other coins out there, yeah. uh, which, uh, the, which some people might uh, want to use in the future. Who knows? So, and that was, okay, we, we, we started uh, analyzing crypto assets already a couple of years ago. Now, in, I think in 2012 already, we published wow. our, our first report. So it's not that central banks really are, are the, the last uh, of, of all the market participants looking at it. So we looked at it at a very early stage already. And um, we, of course, our perspective was, can, can it impact uh, the financial ecosystem? Can it impact uh, monetary policy, financial stability, the functioning of our, our services here? Can it impact central banking? Yeah. And uh, we, we, we concluded as long as market capitalization is low and as long as the links to the real economy are not that uh, substantive, uh, there would be no real impact on the financial ecosystem. And we look at the market capitalization today, it's, I don't know, around about 1% of the euro area GDP. And uh, look at the links to the real economy. Yes, there are Bitcoin futures traded and so on, but I think they are still not very substantial. And so our stance has always been and continues to be that crypto assets are more a niche phenomenon. And here I really mean the first generation of, uh, of, of, of Bitcoin and friends. But of course, then you have the, the, the new kid on the block, which is stablecoins. Because the first generation of crypto assets are maybe not used because of the high volatility. And then you have stable coins, which uh, tackle precisely this, uh, this, this problem. And, um, and that is why we also started uh, developing interest in stable coins. And uh, we also published a report in, in, in summer. And then we have uh, worked together with a, with a global community of central banks on the, in, 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 on the G7 report around stable coins, which was, of course, triggered by the, by the Libra announcement in, in, in June last year. And uh, so this is, the, the journey is still ongoing. And on stable coins, uh, we think the jury is still out. It depends on the design of a stable coin, whether it could impact, whether it could gain ground, whether it could maybe then, in the end, uh, be a competitor to the euro. All, all this remains on the precise design of a, of a stable coin. And uh, yes, we are closely looking at, uh, at the matter. Yeah, I'm interested in your guys' perspective on Libra because when when they announced, it was like everyone was up in arms about it, and and for a while, a lot of people were talking had very strong opinions on Libra. What are your your guys' opinions on Libra? Yeah, first of all, I, I think it, it's it's important to, to uh, there's a lot of discussion around uh, Libra. So you, you you say stablecoin, people mean Libra, but I think we should realize that that there's more out there, and maybe maybe there there will be. Uh, uh, stablecoin solutions in the in the future, which maybe not even uh, vaguely resemble the design of, of Libra. But, but Libra, okay, I don't want to dodge the question. Uh, what we think about uh, Libra, Libra, and what we always s said, and I think it's, it's valid. It's it's uh, if you if this idea is launched, there must be a business case. And of course, uh, um, financial inclusion, cross border payments, uh, this could be improved certainly, and uh, maybe. Uh, Libra could be a solution, but there might be other means to 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 do that. So um, it's not the case that central banks always say, "Okay, there's there's a, there's something new happening, and we are against it." We also see that there might be some merit in in uh, in these new uh, phenomena like like stablecoins and and Libra. But of course, it also entails risk, and this is of course then something we have to carefully look at. 
if uh, this is widely used and uh, could uh, entail risk, then it could uh, impact uh, the financial ecosystem. And this is something we, of course, would like to and uh, need to avoid. This goes far beyond a central bank role. This uh, also uh, it relates to the to the roles of um, of the supervisors of the of the different governments, and that is why we work together uh, with them and uh, published the G7 stablecoin report uh, last year. Um, so I don't. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about the different categories of crypto assets and go into that? I don't want to run into too much time because I am conscious of the fact that I've taken your time for for far too long. <laughs> I want, if you have a question on on the stablecoin categories, happy to answer. Okay, let's talk about the categories of stablecoins. Um, I don't really know about this, so I'd love some insight. Yeah, um, I think the the the, the stablecoin world is very colorful. Stablecoins. When you, Libra is something. Okay, it's 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 backed by a basket of assets. It's uh, um, backed by 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 money, so to speak, uh, by tokenized. Uh, it can be it's kind of a tokenized. Uh, uh, fund, but there are also different other types of stable coins out there already. Some are backed by, um, by, for example, real estate, by gold, so yeah. by by assets held outside the blockchain. But others are also uh, backed by um, assets which are held on the chain. So that means stable coins are backed by by other crypto assets like Ethereum, uh, for ex for example, and then. I think this is maybe the most interesting and fascinating, not that it's uh, uh, already well developed, but there are some projects out there. This is the algorithmic stablecoin where uh, there's an algorithm uh, which is uh, matching supply and demand. And so this um, mechanics trying to keep uh, the, the coin stable or at least minimize fluctuations. And so this just to illustrate that uh, stable coins uh, are, are more than Libra. And uh, as I said, the jury is still out on, on whether they will eventually gain ground. But I think it's, it's a fascinating area, uh, which also the central bank community should be familiar with. Yeah, definitely. So to find out more information on what you guys are doing, I'm going to link to a lot of your different reports and obviously websites and everything for um, that. But is there any way people, if people are interested in what you guys are doing, how can they learn more? Is it just by kind of reading the reports or reaching out? How, if I want to know what you guys are doing, how do I do that? Yeah, the, I think our website is a good source of information. So yeah. we have uh, all, all reports and whatever we discussed uh, over the last uh, uh, minutes and uh, more than half an hour. Yes, you can find it on the ECB website. And if there are questions, of course, we can always be contacted. Not a problem. We're happy. We're happy to answer questions, and we're interested in uh, in the opinions uh, and uh, of the views of the of the people out there. Of course. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much for joining me today, despite the technical issues that no one will. That no one will. Technical issues. There were no technical. No one's going to hear it when I actually put this episode out. But, but alas, in the spirit of being uh, honest. Um, okay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Isabel, as well for for joining. Um, this is great. I learned so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having us. Bye bye. Yay! 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Life in the Fast Chain. I think it was amazing to get them on the phone. I wish we could have gotten Dirk and Cedric in person, but maybe for a future episode. They were so wonderful. I learned so much about the space. Honestly, central banks getting involved, they obviously are uh, doing a lot in the space and kind of doing what they can with this new technology. Obviously, they're at the forefront of that. So, I think it's so interesting. It was so cool for me to have people from the European Central Bank on. So thank you to you guys for for coming on. And thank you to the listeners for listening. Uh, Follow us on all social media and share the podcast, friends, family. Um, And yeah, keep an eye out for the next one. Thanks. Bye. Bye.